Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 23. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's Christ on the Mount of Olives. This work, Beethoven's only oratorio, is rarely characterized as one of the composer's greatest, but it is a fascinating one in some respects, and for better or worse, he never wrote another quite like it. The work was composed to fill out a concert program given in Holy Week of 1803, a program that also included, as I mentioned in the last episode, Symphony No. 2 and Piano Concerto No. 3, a rather crowded program, but not that unusual for the period. Beethoven composed his oratorio in a relatively brief time period, too brief, he would later claim, and in a style that was frankly operatic, and why not experiment with operatic conventions? Clearly, Beethoven was interested in composing an opera and was probably anxious to show his abilities in that area. That path led to even greater fame than he now possessed and significant financial reward. Perhaps because of that, he turned to Franz Xavier Huber, editor of the Wiener Zeitung and sometimes opera librettist, for the text of his oratorio although Beethoven himself apparently had significant input into that text, something that did not prevent him from later criticizing it roundly after the fact, about which I'll say more later. The work opens with a somber orchestral introduction, as you would expect given the subject matter, and with an opening motive of a slowly ascending triad in E-flat minor, a rather grave and somewhat unusual key. And the orchestral sonority is itself quite austere. Bassoons and horns, low in their range, are joined by tenor and bass trombones, added to the standard orchestral instrumentation here to provide some additional weight and gravity, although it seems that the trombone parts were very much a last-minute addition, with Beethoven still working on them the morning of the performance. The first movement begins in common time, but only for two measures. Then we shift to 6-8 and adagio, and the strings, violins being muted at this point, present the first melodic idea in octaves, very quietly. It's a little angular and unsettled, perhaps even a little ominous, shifting between the raised seventh scale degree and its flatted version in its opening four-measure phrase. It's a simple idea, but its somber yet restless quality establishes the perfect aura for what is about to unfold. Two new ideas are introduced beginning in the following measures, the horns leading the way with austere, fanfare-like dotted rhythm figures. The strings soften the effect slightly, eventually coalescing into a more extended melodic statement. 
but the emphasis remains on the austere fanfare-like dotted note repetitions as we crescendo. There is something of a shift in mood introduced by a series of pianissimo timpani strokes. I'll play that passage in a minute. And soon we find ourselves in the key of E major in a very clever modulation, in which the E flat, the tonic note in E flat minor, is enharmonically reinterpreted as D sharp, the third of the B major chord. Beethoven did not invent this sort of enharmonic modulation. Haydn had produced some extraordinary examples of it on occasion, but it is done very effectively here and demonstrates the way in which subtle shifts in harmony can quickly modify the emotional temperature from one passage to the next. I'm not going to play the whole orchestral introduction, but here's the passage in question. As you may have noticed, this rather fragile sentimentality is short-lived. After a few measures, six more quiet timpani strokes transport us back to the stark emotional intensity of the opening measures of the introduction. The message is perfectly clear. The story to be told is about suffering on a very personal level. And, as we'll see, the librettist, in fact, goes out of his way to make Christ's reaction here extraordinarily personal and intense, much more so than in the sort of libretti normally encountered in 18th century settings of the Passion. And I don't think it's far-fetched to imagine that Beethoven related on some level to the idea of suffering, in his case his encroaching deafness, as a burden imposed upon him from above, one which he must somehow endure. As the introduction continues, some new motives are added as the dynamic levels continue to fluctuate quickly and frequently. The fanfare-like dotted note repetitions recur, and Beethoven eventually makes his way to a long and surprisingly peaceful pedal on G, which will serve as the dominant of the new key of C minor for the entrance of the opening recitative. That recitative is in 6-8 and begins pianissimo. The role of Jesus is here sung by a tenor and Peter by a bass, something of a switch from the conventional arrangement by Bach and others, perhaps to allow here for the more obvious display of emotional intensity by Jesus who in most libretti projects a more stoic image. In fact, Beethoven later appears to have questioned whether he may have made the part a little too operatic and perhaps lacking in dignity. 
The seraph, or angel roll, sung by a soprano, and not included in any biblical account, appears to have been introduced more to provide vocal contrast than for any dramatic purpose. In the opening, rather subdued line of his recitative, Jesus asks his Father to give him the comfort and strength to bear the hour of his suffering. Although the opening measures contain some large vocal leaps, the general mood is restrained, darkening only at the end of the first line, as the harmony reminds us that we are still in C minor, and that that gentle dwelling on the dominant chord of G major was just a temporary idol. The recitative is interrupted briefly by the return of the more ominous theme heard in the opening measures, and just two bars later, the first part of the recitative ends with a grim reference to Jesus' suffering and the foreboding timpani strokes return. Then the tempo quickens suddenly to allegro, the meter changes to common time, and the mood increases in urgency and rhythmic agitation, with frequent orchestral interruptions. As the text states, I worship thee still before the world at thy command emerged from chaos, Swafford points out that the orchestral passage that follows owes a great deal to the blaze of light which represented the victory over chaos in Haydn's Creation Oratorio, a work which Beethoven clearly admired. And it is certainly not the last Haydn-esque gesture he incorporates into this work. In the continuing recitative, Jesus refers to the seraph or angel and his voice of thunder, calling on him to be the mediator by which men's sins may be forgiven. Here is the opening section of the recitative, which, although fragmented by frequent interruptions, is otherwise a reasonably conventional musical interpretation of the emotional text. The text for the opening aria continues its elaboration on Jesus' anxiety, which is expressed in terms that go far beyond the biblical description. It begins, My soul trembles at the suffering that is near me. Fear holds me, and my limbs tremble in terror. The orchestral introduction for the aria begins with ominous, throbbing eighth notes and a dramatic buildup of tension. But Beethoven's initial theme, although bleak, features large, bounding, ascending leaps and projects a determined, almost heroic mood, 
the despairing nature of the text notwithstanding. The mood changes somewhat as Beethoven modulates to the relative major key of E-flat, but the text here offers no relief as it references the fear that grips me like fever, and soon the music follows suit as we head to F minor and then D-flat major and then back to the grim introductory key of E-flat minor. Meanwhile, the tenor's line becomes more tentative, more uncertain, almost as if losing confidence. But the relative major key returns and brings with it a new melody, indicating a greater sense of composure, hopefulness, and nobility, as the text suggests that the Father might take the cup of suffering from Jesus, since with God everything is possible. Even the orchestral texture lightens briefly, with the cellos and double basses switching to pizzicato. But the hopeful feeling soon yields to more passionate pleading, all in vain. And when the music reverts to a minor key, it becomes clear that the cup will not pass from Jesus. At that point, a variant of the opening theme reappears, now sounding more bleak than heroic.
We're back in a major key temporarily, a different one this time, for a briefer return of the pleading section. But the die has been cast, the decision made, and the aria comes to a close, quietly depicting a mood of grim pathos. The recitative that follows, sung by a coloratura soprano representing the seraph or angel, provides another example of the librettist humanizing Jesus by focusing on his despair. It begins, Shudder earth, Jehovah's son lies here, his face in the dust, quite abandoned by his father and suffering unspeakable torment. Beethoven's brief introduction, six measures long, begins quietly but quickly crescendos to forte as the strings cascade down the A major chord to set the stage for the soprano. The recitative itself is solid and, for the most part, dramatically appropriate, making use of diminished and minor chords at crucial points, even though on the whole it demonstrates less intensity than the first part of the text would seem to suggest with its references to Jesus being abandoned by his father and suffering unspeakable torment. But the central message here is that Jesus is perfectly prepared to die a death of martyrdom to raise mankind. Here is the first part of the recitative. The text for the multi-sectional aria which follows focuses on the redemptive aspects of Jesus' suffering, and so is, for the most part, rather cheerful and elegant, comparable, perhaps, to a lighter aria with supporting chorus and some flashes of virtuoso coloratura writing that might have found its way into Mozart's magic flute. The text begins with, Praise the Redeemer's goodness, praise mankind his kindness, he dies for us through love for you. His blood wipes out your guilt. It's set to a charming, if rather frothy, melody in G major, 3-8 time, in marked larghetto, which does little more than hint at minor key somberness when the text speaks of love wiping out blood and guilt.
At the end of my excerpt, you heard the ornate melisma on the word praise. A hint of the more formidable vocal fireworks we'll encounter a little later. We switch to common time and a tempo of allegro for the next section, where the seraph is joined by a chorus of angels. Again, the text begins quite cheerfully. O hail to your Redeemer! Happiness beckons you, if true, in love and faith and hope. And the music does the same, with a new melodic idea beginning with a more authoritative ascending leap, but otherwise unfolding in similar fashion. Here's an excerpt from the entrance of the soprano and through that part of the text I just quoted. You'll hear near the end of the excerpt on the word liba or love, the soprano extending her range to a high D with some rather coquettish sounding staccato quarter notes. But this cheerful Mozartian mood won't extend through the entire aria, of course, because the mood of the text is about to change dramatically. Doc ve, alas, again flows the blood for you and wipes away the judge's curse for your redemption from condemnation. We saw a shift in mood similar to this one in the previous aria, but the contrast is much stronger here. The key switches abruptly to D minor, fortissimo, with a new and more rhythmically aggressive motive based on the D minor chord introduced in the strings. Here are the last few bars of the first part of the aria and the turn toward a more somber and dramatic direction. The more agitated theme in the strings is now broken up into shorter, more urgent-sounding fragments as Beethoven makes his way quickly through a series of tonal areas before finally making his way back to G major for the entrance of the chorus. Here, the soprano's melody is itself more fragmented, stopping and starting and pausing dramatically before launching into sustained notes at the top of her range, before tumbling back down to the bottom. My excerpt concludes right before the entrance of the chorus.
The chorus then enters quite modestly with a simple four-part texture which is largely homophonic but occasionally shows a little bit of independence, sopranos and basses sometimes joining up to echo altos and tenors. The most interesting activity is actually at the top of the texture, where the flutes soon add a much more active countermelody, later joined by the oboes. The text, O Hail to Your Redeemer, Happiness Beckons You, represents a counterpart to what we just heard from the first part of this seraph's aria. And soon the seraph joins in with a variant of her original melody over the fairly subdued choral accompaniment. Here's the entrance of the chorus, the addition of the solo soprano over the chorus. As before, the mood turns more somber when the text refers to the blood that flows for you, the blood that wipes out the judge's curse. The choral writing is certainly more animated and even takes on something of a dramatic function with its frequent crescendos and other tension-creating effects. What it is not is particularly distinctive or idiosyncratic to Beethoven in any way. The means used here are rather conventional, and so the effect is rather conventional. There are more virtuoso passages on the way for the soprano, still soaring above the somewhat repetitive choral part. But all of this is standard operating procedure for a religious work drawing heavily on operatic traditions. Beethoven is far from the first composer to do this, of course. The great Haydn was occasionally criticized for his overly operatic-sounding arias, even in some of his masses. But if what Beethoven is doing here is not irregular, it is also not particularly inspiring. 
The next movement begins with a recitative shared by the tenor and soprano. The tenor begins with another entreaty. Dost thou announce, Seraph, with thy lips the mercy of my eternal Father? Does he take from me the horror of death? The seraph's response has a certain majestic air about it as it moves from C major to A flat major, especially because of its use of trombones, which, as I've mentioned earlier, are often included in a number of sacred choral works to add a bit of gravitas. Her response is, So speaks Jehovah, before the holy mystery of atonement is fulfilled, so long is mankind rejected and deprived of eternal life. Here is the entire recitative. Verkündet, Seraph, mir dein Mund, Erbarmen meines ewigen Vaters. Nimmt er des Todes Schrecknisse von mir, The duet that follows is certainly competent, but lacking in any really distinctive qualities. The text is, So rest then with all its weight on me, my Father, thy judgment. Pour over me the storm of suffering, only be not angry with Adam's children. Beginning in A-flat major, three-four time, and marked adagio molto, it's introduced by ascending arpeggio figures in the strings, and a passage for cello solo that combines nobility with a touch of sentiment. The tenor's opening melodic statement continues the restrained but noble mood, predictably tilting briefly toward F minor at the reference to the storm of suffering. Here's a little of the solo cello passage going into the tenor's first statement. Later, the soprano joins in with a text, I see the noble one shudder, shrouded in the pains of death. I tremble, and about me waft the horrors of the grave, which he fulfills. The mood darkens significantly as the soprano sings of the horrors of the grave. Peace be, peace be. 
Soon after, soprano and tenor joined together in a more composed and noble manner to sing, Great is the suffering, the anguish, the fear that God's hand pours out on him. But greater yet is the love with which his heart encompasses the world. But we're going to move on to the next section, a recitative sung by the tenor in F major and 3-4 time, one which begins with an orchestral introduction of almost ethereal serenity. The text is, Welcome death that I die in blood on the cross for the salvation of men. O blessed be in your cold grave as eternal sleep holds you in his arms. Soon will you wake to happiness. The tenor begins with a calm, almost meditative approach with only the slightest hint of uncertainty, showing that Jesus has become reconciled to his place in God's plan. In the last few measures, the quieter meditative approach has been replaced by a triumphant proclamation of waking to happiness. But if the recitative has an air of courageous nobility about it, the chorus of soldiers that follows struggles to project a sense of dignity. The key is C major. We're in common time, and Beethoven has marked the score in the style of a march and pianissimo. To make the identification complete, the composer stubbornly repeats a dotted rhythm motive again and again mixing it with staccato quarter notes and a few offbeats tossed in to increase the energy level a little. It comes close to striking the modern listener as a parody, although Beethoven does add some interest by forcing the first violin's dotted rhythm melody ever higher against a cello line that soars to a climax before returning to the pianissimo march rhythm. When the voices enter, the feeling of parody is actually reinforced. First of all, the text seems peculiar. The soldiers, first and second tenors and basses, sing, 
We saw him going towards the hill. He cannot escape. Yes, judgment awaits him. Apparently, merely walking towards the Mount of Olives constitutes an escape attempt to the soldiers. Jesus then interrupts with a recitative, the march rhythm still serving as an introduction. Those who would capture me are drawing near, my Father. Let my sufferings quickly pass. May the hours go as the clouds that a storm wind blows in thy heaven. Yet not my will, but thine be done. Here is the first part of the recitative. But the soldiers remain committed to their task. They sing rather vigorously, There he is, the criminal so bold among the people, who called himself King of the Jews. Seize him and bind him. Another part of the chorus, tenors only, now represents the disciples, who sing with less bombast and a certain degree of trepidation. What does this noise mean? What is happening? Surrounded by cruel soldiers, who will save us? This really does seem almost like comic opera material if you forget that the subject is the passion of Jesus Christ. And Beethoven's musical setting at this point does little to transcend the text. The chorus sings in a mostly simple, homophonic texture and doesn't seem to be taking their situation all that seriously. 
Beethoven does manage to generate a certain amount of raw energy as the dual choruses begin to compete more actively, with considerable overlap, as the movement proceeds. But it's really no contest, of course. The soldiers will have their way. Here's another excerpt from the chorus, including part of the exchange between the soldiers and the disciples. Peter now appears on the scene, sung by a bass, with a recitative shared with Jesus. At this point, Peter is bold and assertive as he sings, Not unpunished shall be the brave band of the Lord, my friend and master, if he is seized by wicked hands. But Jesus' portion of the recitative is naturally more restrained, as he sings, O leave thy sword in its scabbard. If it were the will of my Father to save me from the power of the devil, he would send legions of angels to save me. At the reference to the power of the devil, the level of urgency increases significantly as we shift from Adagio to Allegro, but only very briefly. Then the pace slows again, this time to Andante Cantabile, as Jesus regains his composure and refers to the legion of angels that could be sent in his defense. A trio for the seraph, Jesus, and Peter follows in B-flat major, common time, and marked allegro man non troppo. It begins with a brief but robust and confident orchestral introduction, 
after which Peter enters. Peter here appears not only bold and confident, but positively heroic in a generic sort of way, with his repeated dotted rhythms and descending triads, as he sings, In my veins rage uncontrolled anger and wrath. Let my vengeance cool in the offender's blood. But Jesus' response is, of course, much more moderate in tone and very lovely, much more lyrical than Peter's proclamation and slightly sentimental in nature, reminding Peter how he should conduct himself. Thou shalt not exact revenge. I taught you only to love all mankind, rather to forgive your enemy. The angel's contribution, although perfectly appropriate to the situation, is perhaps a little less inspired, as she sings, Mark, O man, and hear, God's holy word alone teaches love of our neighbor. Jesus and the seraph then join forces to elaborate on this theme, singing, O humankind, hold the holy commandment, love those that hate you, only this is pleasing to our God. But just four measures later, Peter joins in, referring again to his uncontrolled rage and wrath on a variant of his original theme. Peter breaks away from the trio for a few measures to repeat his more militant position but Jesus returns, urging him to forego all violence. 
Not surprisingly, Jesus wins the argument, and after a break in the action enforced by a fermata, the trio starts up again, with all voices in accord this time, as they join together for a repeat of the original sentiments. O humankind, hold the holy commandment, love those that hate you, only this is pleasing to our God. My excerpt will extend through the first part of the unified trio. The oratorio could have ended there, with a generally satisfactory conclusion, but it doesn't. We hear from the chorus of soldiers again, bound and determined to drag Jesus before the justice seat. And we hear a rather timid chorus of disciples, bemoaning their likely fates. Here's a little of the final choruses from the soldiers and disciples. Jesus has one more impassioned solo episode where he sings, My trouble is soon gone, the work of redemption fulfilled, all overcome and hell's might defeated. 
The threatening chorus breaks in again, but the tenor proves victorious, singing over it, the work of redemption fulfilled and hell's might defeated. There is, of course, a heroic final chorus, two of them, actually. Here's a bit of the first, homophonic in texture, with repeated double-dotted rhythms to give it a ceremonial, almost French overture-like flavor. Worlds sing thanks and praise to the heroic Son of God. Praise Him, choirs of angels, loud Him in holy jubilation. The second chorus is a dignified but lively fugue. It is, perhaps, the only real hit from the oratorio, and sometimes nicknamed Beethoven's Hallelujah, even though the word doesn't appear, presumably because of the repeated plagal cadences that remind listeners of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. The text is again, Praise him, choirs of angels, loud him in holy jubilation.
Can we make any final judgments on this oratorio as a whole? There are some very impressive moments, but Beethoven realized that, on the whole, it was not his best work, and agreed to changes before the score was published eight years later. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, he tended to blame the librettist for some of these problems, but also focused on insufficient time to complete the work and various personal and family problems that were claiming his attention at that point. But in the end, Beethoven may have been most dissatisfied with his own approach. As several commentators have pointed out, his letter to his publisher includes the remark that what is quite certain is that now I would compose an absolutely different oratorio from what I composed then. Of course, Beethoven was to go on to compose some good and even great religious works, but none of them make use of operatic conventions and certainly not operatic clichés of the sort we occasionally encounter in Christ on the Mount of Olives. For our next episode, we'll look at Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 3 in C minor, Opus 37.